Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. That's kind of disturbing, actually. I don't know whether I should get up and dance or sit in a deli and brood. Uh, all right. Uh, we, we have two acclaimed masters of comedy uh, on here with us to, to talk about uh, diff- very different kinds of books. However, uh, a little bit later in the show, you'll hear from Martin Short. Uh, his book is uh, called, I Must Say, My Life is a Humble Comedy Legend. It's a memoir. But we're going to start first with Peter Melman. Peter Melman is the uh, writer and producer for Seinfeld, who's, uh, who gave the world such comic tropes as yada yada, spongeworthy, shrinkage. Uh, we may get around to some of those things, but um, we want to begin by talking about what the kids on the street uh, are referring to. You know how the kids on the street are. They now refer to it as IWABTG. Um, which is it won't always be this great. That's the uh, name of Peter Millman's new comic novel. Have you, you've you've heard the kids calling it that, right? Though everywhere I go, it's yeah. just you know it's it's so gratifying just yeah. to hear kids of all stri- from from age of maybe four up on upward. The kids are yeah. just it's incredible. I W A B T G. Probably the first few times you heard it, you didn't even know that was your book they were talking about. Um, uh, no, I didn't. No, the kids with their slang, basically. So um, we have so many things that we want to know about this book, but uh, I want to begin that your nameless protagonist in this book, this man who touches off kind of unwittingly this uh, long, complicated uh, series of events and concerns and, and uh, uh, an act of anti-Semitic vandalism, uh, except that that's not really what it was. He's a podiatrist. And so my first question is, how deep did you go? I mean, how much about podiatry did you feel that you had to learn to write convincingly from the point of view of a podiatrist? Oh, not that far. I just yeah. called up my college roommate who's a podiatrist whenever I was in trouble and I needed some kind of podiatric reference. Right. I just called him. Yeah. And so... And the scary thing is that he seemed to be available to me no matter what time I called. <laughs> well, he might be at the tail end of his career. You know, it's just winding down some of the really long-running cases. Maybe he's not taking new patients, as they say. Just the, the planter's warts that just never really resolved. You know, he's still got them. Um, so you've decided really to kind of, to, in writing a comic novel, you've kind of gone back to what you really kind of set out to do in life in the first place, right? Write for publication. This, the, this uh, side trip into television, from what I know, is not, was not exactly what you originally planned. Is that correct? Well, Seinfeld was definitely a detour in my career. Mm-hmm. Granted, it was a fantastic detour. <laughs> As detours go. As detours go, it was out of this world. But I don't know. But it was a detour. I don't know exactly what I planned in my career. I mean, I never really had goals because, you know, you know, speaking of the kids, you know, like they're always talking about their goals. And I'm always thinking, why have goals? I mean, why limit yourself? (laughs) <laughs> the kids and their goals. So um, w- are there specific models that you had or, or in other words, 
you know, there is something really amazing about a comic novel. And a comic novel, if it grabs you, if it seizes you, it can make you laugh almost harder than anything. Uh, some, sometimes because I think you're sort of deeper and deeper into the spell of the plot of, of the comic novel. Were there novels that you grew up reading or fiction that you grew up reading that was funny in a way that you wanted to be funny? Um, I would say, I know it doesn't seem like comic novels but i would say john updike's rabbit books mm-hmm. were the were the ones because i mean they were parts that were incredibly funny but just lines here and there and um and you know philip roth also you know very funny and you know later on i laurie moore always was very funny writer to me and um you know and so but not anybody specific just little bits and pieces yeah and I, I find as a reader often it is that one sentence that you know maybe it's a novel by Dennis Johnson or something like that but and it's not even overarchingly a comic novel but somehow or other something has built up inside you as you've read 200 pages and then you come to something that's really funny and absurd and it just destroys you in a way that almost a, a comedy show or a, a movie couldn't you're just sort of that much uh, deeper in. So in terms of just level of difficulty, um, you've written scripts for Seinfeld. You've done other things. Uh, how does writing a comic novel stack up? Um, it wasn't that hard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I just, got a mom- I just got a certain amount of momentum going. I started, I was about 30 pages in before I even realized I was writing a novel. And then I... You know, just to discipline myself a little bit, I decided that I had to make some progress every day, even if it was just a paragraph. And then, you know, once you sit down and you write a paragraph, I mean, like, who stops after one paragraph? So I just got a good momentum going. So um, it wasn't that hard, and I didn't have people over my shoulders, you know, waiting for my product like I've had in every other job. You know, when I was at the Washington Post, there was an editor standing over me, and you know, Larry David was like, "Where? Uh, when's the script going to be done?" You know, and um, so, in a way, this the writing the novel was easier. And uh, there are touches. Well, I mean, let me put it a different way. There are touches in the novel that that are um, that that could have almost come from a Seinfeld script, but I'm sort of wondering how naturally they, I mean, even just something like the, the, the this whole thing begins with the throwing of a bottle of horseradish, except that it's not just a bottle of horseradish, it's called Mossad horseradish. Um, was that just something that flowed out as you're sitting there writing, or were you sort of consciously thinking, no, got to make it funny, got to make the name of the horseradish funny, uh, got to get some other kind of evocation in here? Yeah, I, I would say that I thought the name of the horseradish had to be kind of like somewhat abs- absurdist and slightly also fanatical. <laughs> it's you know yeah it'll it'll take your mouth by storm. Um, yeah. The um, there there are touches that are in in the novel that are Seinfeldian, but I'm I'm wondering if that's fair to say or whether this that you would have written this novel pretty much the same way before you ever approached writing a Seinfeld script. I'm thinking of for example, there's a scene where the man whose whose uh, sign has been uh, whose store has been kind of attacked by the throwing of this horseradish bottle comes to visit the podiatrist, uh, unaware that the podiatrist is in fact the person who threw the horseradish bottle. Um, and there's like this little sort of thing about it. Do you want coffee? Is it going to be decaf? Uh, would you like a bagel? Yes, a salt bagel would be nice. We don't have a salt bagel. And at the end, the, the narrator says he kind of waits 
to for he, for himself and his wife to be invited to address this man by his first name because after all they've had this conversation about d- different kinds of coffee and different kinds of bagel now it's time for this next thing and um and and it doesn't come and and it, one of the things that I thought Seinfeld did so well was just sort of palpate social life or what are the rules what are the unwritten rules what are the codes uh, what happens when you don't follow the code I mean are, are is that's that, what the whole show is about yeah so so but that's there in the book too is that there in the book because of all the time you spent thinking about it writing for Seinfeld or is that who you are anyway I think both you know I mean Seinfeld had a very strong influence on what I did in the book but you know again so did you know writing for a newspaper and so did working for Howard Cosell in the in the mid 80s you know i mean all these things just contribute to it it certainly wouldn't have been the same book if i had written it before seinfeld um and i did kind of get a huge appreciation for those little moments of etiquette but um you know it it, it wasn't exactly i i didn't really have seinfeld in mind when i was writing the book no, of course not. The book, by the way, is uh, It Won't Always Be This Great by Peter Millman, or as we say, as the kids call it, I-W-A-B-T-G, um, you know, a comic novel by Peter Millman. There's a, another moment in the book where um, uh, three of the characters, uh, the family, I think, is riding along in a car, and they see uh, another car. <laughs> <laughs> they see another car that has a fish on it, and they it takes them a little while to understand what the fish is. The fish is a Christian fish. Uh, it's the symbol, uh, the symbol the Christians use. And they have this big conversation about the fish and why is the fish the symbol and what do Jews have on their car uh, in, in place of that in order to confer divine protection on their car. And one of the characters says that the Mer- they have a Mercedes Benz symbol. But um, that does that are once again you sort I sort of wonder where this comes from. Are you driving along yourself looking? You see the fish that fish symbol. On somebody's car does does that all begin to sort of percolate observationally just as you're kind of going through your life oh absolutely i see the fish turning up on different cars and then i start kind of noticing what make of car in general ha- would have a fish on it mm-hmm. i start realizing that you know you've you don't really see many jesus fish on like a mercedes l55 or whatever the that is i don't know you know, it's just kind of it's, right. it's such a weird class kind of thing, too. You know, it's you well, know, I guess I guess I guess once you get to the point where you could spend one hundred twenty thousand dollars on a car, you don't really feel like you need a, a little fish on the back to protect you. Right, you're, you're not praying for things anymore. You already got them. Uh, right. Or you're arrogant enough to believe that you're above that kind of thing. So, um, you know, I mean, this also raises the question uh, of, sort of, you know, where other where some of these classic ideas. I mean, you really are fortunate enough to to have done work that's now embedded in the language. I can tell you that in the five years that we're we've been doing this show quite frequently when we're talking about some kind of show that we're going to do, we realize that there's uh, even if it's a serious show, there's a relevant Seinfeld clip. There's some way in which uh, Seinfeld has explored this linguistically or, as I said before, in those those codes, those almost kind of Talmudic understandings of the way things either are or aren't mm-hmm. supposed to be. Um, so uh, uh, we'll, we'll, this, this play, we're going to play one of your most famous clips, and, and maybe we could just talk a little bit about how something like this comes to be. This is the yada yada um, sequence. 
Listen to this. Marcy comes over and she tells me that her ex-boyfriend was over late last night and yada, 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 I'm really tired today. What do you think she was tired from? Well, obviously the yada, yada. You don't think she'd yada, yada sex? I've yada, yada sex. Really? I met this lawyer, we went out to dinner, I had the lobster bisque, we went back to my place, yada, yada, yada. I never heard from him again. But you yada, yada over the best part. No, I mentioned the bisque. When we first were discussing this clip, I said uh, to, uh, to Betsy, I described the clip and, and said, you've got to get the, no, I mentioned the bisque, because it's just such a great capper uh, to that joke. But and so here's, the, I mean, yada, yada existed before Seinfeld, but somehow or other you... Not managed to explore it linguistically, what it means, what it can stand in for, what it can't stand in for. Do you remember the thought process that, that led you to that? Absolutely. And it was it's very strange because maybe 10 years before that, I had had a meeting with an editor in New York of a magazine, and I noticed that she used yada yada a couple of times, and that was the first time I had ever heard it. And then, you know, 10 years later, I don't know, somehow that came back into my head. And I was thinking, boy, you, if you say yada yada, you could really cover up all manners of sin. You know, it's, it's just amazing what, what you can, like, paper over. And so it just seemed like a funny little tick. And, you know, on Seinfeld, you were always looking for something that could run through all the stories. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once she's saying yada yada, then... You know, then everybody's kind of saying it, and everybody's using it. So, um, yeah, that was the that was the whole thought process behind it. It's just amazing to me that it took so long for me to think of that. But it is is it also amazing <coughs> to you the degree to which, and as I say, yada yada existed before Seinfeld, but it exists in a completely different way. I mean, I, it seems as though the the, the language itself uh, has been transfigured a little bit by some of these terms. Maybe it's hard for you as the writer to. Uh, to, to see that. But I would imagine just in your daily life with people maybe not even knowing what you do for a living or what you did for a living, y- you may hear that sometimes. It must be odd. I do hear that uh, quite a bit. Um, and uh, it's just kind of gratifying. It's kind of great, you know. I mean, you know, people are always saying, asking me also, like, God, how does it feel to make up, to have, you know, written this thing that people are using? And I don't know. I always thought I felt really, I felt pretty good about it. But I get the question so much, I start worrying that I'm not feeling good enough about it. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I we did an entire episode about uh, of this show about Seinfeld. And, uh, to to me, and I think to to a lot of our guests and listeners, I mean, the the miracle of this show was that it was this kind of Socratic expo- exploration of life, not just for comic tropes, but for a, a real mining, a real you know attempt to understand what certain things mean. Uh, and and it does. It, ha- it has a way of sort of almost uh, poisoning the well of certain terms. I mean, the, uh, the example that jumps into my, my mind isn't from Seinfeld, it's from Curb Your Enthusiasm, but uh, there was one uh, where they were exploring the, the phrase, having said that. Um, and, and it was the case that they did it so poignantly and so perfectly that I can't use that phrase anymore without seeing it for what they insisted that it was, which was sort of a way of invalidating everything that was to follow, right? You know, ha- having said that, you know, I, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. I have so many. Ex- I have so many expressions I can't use. I guess that's just that's part of the influence too. You know, like and I cringe when people say, "Well, at the end of the day, right?" 
You know, wh- what about at 9 o'clock in the morning? Was the complete opposite true? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You know, these expressions drive me crazy. You know, like I, I, I really wish that I could be like a cabinet secretary or something like that that can ban expre- who can ban expressions. It can't like be done. If, like if I had, could have just a wing at the Justice Department where <laughs> it was, you know, and I could just say, no, you are not allowed to say size matters anymore. That would be great. Uh, yeah, uh, the the first that would be the perfect job for me. It wouldn't be much work. I'd right. have a lot of power. Uh, the First Amendment might get in the way occasionally. We're talking to Peter Melman. He is uh, a former writer, producer for Seinfeld, and now the author of the novel "It Won't Always Be This Great." One of the things you explore in this novel is a happy marriage. You have your your unnamed protagonist is in fact wildly in love with his wife thrilled, you know, actually, I think it is something that George Costanza says uh, is that the secret to a good relationship is that each of you have to has to secretly think you're getting a better deal than the other person. And and this your your protagonist, he thinks he's getting a better deal that his wife, Elise, is just, you know, more than what he really deserves. Now, for the most part, that's not a good comic premise, right? For the most part, you know, the comic premise is usually there's something wa- wrong with the relationship. In fact, Seinfeld was in just this long cascade of relationships that had one particular distinct thing wrong with them from relationship to relationship. So how did you decide that a happy marriage could be a comic premise? I didn't consciously decide it until about 50 pages in. I had him say one little joke about his wife, and all of a sudden I started feeling awful about it because I liked his wife so much. You know, everything up until that point, I thought she was so cool that all of a sudden I said, no, you know, you can't say anything bad about her. He's crazy about her. You're crazy. I'm crazy about her. We are all, you know, I know a woman who said she, if I were a guy, she'd be my dream girl. You know, so that's when all of a sudden I kind of thought to myself, you know, no one ever writes about a good marriage. That's a whole new genre. The good marriage. Who talks about that? So I decided to try to follow that. And, you know, you're right. It's certainly not a... Um, a great comic avenue, but uh, not everything has to be funny in there, so it seemed like it was worth exploring. It would be fun to rewrite all of Henny Youngman and Rodney Dangerfield's jokes from the premise that they had really great marriages and really liked their wives a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Rodney Dangerfield. He, yeah. He, that would have gotten him right back into aluminum siding. Right, exactly. Uh, you can't take my wife. I'm crazy about my <laughs> wife. I love my yeah. wife. But but I think well, the the other thing your novel is also kind of exploring is that the thing that there is sort of a moment. This is a character who's in his fifties, and there's a moment in which a, a, a guy that there's something about men they can have pretty much what they want. I mean, he has pretty much what he wants. But somehow or other, even this relationship, he's lucky enough to be wildly in love with his wife. Nonetheless. He, a podiatrist, is lured into flirting with a hideously inappropriately young podiatry patient. Um, so you know, what you're thinking about that, what you're thinking about, oh, I mean, this, this is a comic novel, but it has serious underpinnings to it. What are, you, what are you telling us about guys at that moment? That no matter how content we seem or, you know, how anyone could look at some man's life and say, boy, he's got it all. You're wrong, you know, because that person doesn't feel like he's got it made. Nobody really feels like they got it made. Maybe George Clooney, but, you know, who knows? You know, I I just don't think anybody is quite content because 
The fact of the matter is, no matter what choices you make in life, you're always going to be missing out on something. That's what the choice is all about. So if you're single, you're, mar you're missing out on, you know, whatever joys of family. And if you're married, you're missing out on the potential of all of a sudden just running into somebody and having falling madly in love. Everybody has that kind of feeling of a slight void in the corner of their lives. And, you know, no matter who you look at and you think no matter how great their lives are, they don't agree with you. Um, and just to wrap up that point, uh, George Clooney calls me almost every day. He is a wreck, all right? He's just, I am so I am so happy to he, hear that. He is a mess. Nothing makes him happy. Uh, and I love him as an actor. I love him as a director. But I would like to see, like, one area. You know, like now with Tom Brady. Right. You know, it's good to see that the guy's got a little stress in his life. Yeah. Well, I mean, deflate gate, shrinkage, they're basically the same thing. Uh, basically, yeah, that brought, kind of brought back shrinkage, actually. Right, it's basically the same problem. Peter Melman, so great to talk to you. One of the things George Clooney says to me all the time is, why can't I write a book like it won't always be this great? And I say, George, that's just not what you're good at. You know, be happy with what you've got. But they can't do that. Peter Melman, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to take a little break. We'll come back after this. All right. Uh, I think the entertainer Lulu said it best when she said, how do you thank someone who has taken you from crayons to perfume? I'm wearing perfume right now because of the influence that our next guest has had on our, my life. Uh, Martin Short is with us. His new book is I Must Say My Life as a Humble Comedy Legend. Martin Short, welcome to the show. Hello, Colin. How are you? Well, I'm just fine, except for the perfume part. Um, I know, I know. If you smell it through the phone, <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, it's if you've ever wondered what kind of indelible effect you have on the legions of faceless uh, worshippers like me, uh, I'll tell you <laughs> that uh, within about a week ago, not even thinking about the fact that you might be on my show at some point, I was alone in the in my kitchen except for the dog. The dog's lying on the floor, and I turn to the dog and I say, "Years ago, there was a thing called the vaudeville, the vaudeville." <laughs> Now, today, with the Beyonce, you know, I'm sure Mr. Ziegfeld. And so these characters of yours, I'm doing Irving Cohen for my dog. How sad is that? Uh, I've never been prouder. <laughs> but these characters, some of these characters that you incarnated are characters that we came to love and, and, and believe in almost, I guess because you believed in them. How, how real for you were some of the people that you played? Well, you know, uh, they're always based on some, some three-dimensional person, even if it's then, you know, you make them skinny or fat or bald or a different sex. But they're based on a k kind of uh, personality type, you know. Uh, and, and so even Ed Grimley it, it was a, a guy I went to school with. You know, there was a, he, I went to a school with a guy who wanted to be a photographer, so I'd say, Stan, did you take some uh, photos? I took a lot of slides, but um, I, because I took them, I don't need to develop them. And you kind of go, all right, I'll remember. And it was a rhythm that was up. And it was all, like, apprehensive and soft. And you just remember these things. Um, and when I was growing up in, in Hamilton, Ontario, there was a guy down the street who had a very high voice that would go low occasionally. <laughs> and you just, so there's that, but then there's an attitude that you apply to it mm. where it's, you know, someone is 
defensive or someone is um, delusional. And then, you know, I, so you keep adding these little, it's like creating a stew, I guess. The, uh, one of the stories that you tell in the book, I must say, my life as a humble comedy legend, is about basing a character on a real person. This is when you're working on Saturday Night Live. You need to come up with this lawyer. His name is Nathan Thurm. He's this defensive, chain-smoking, kind of cigarette-inhaling uh, guy who, who, who winds up having a catchphrase. But the catchphrase is, it comes from somebody who's like literally 10 feet away from you, right? Right. She, well, there was, there was a makeup artist named Marion Siebert in SNL, and she was... The, you know, the most offensive human being you'd ever met. She would chain smoke, and she would, you'd sit in her chair and say, gee, Miriam, I look a little pale, don't I? And she'd say, I know that. You don't think I know that? I'm a makeup artist. I would know that. And he'd say, okay. So but uh, two months later, I was g- going to do play this role, or this piece that Christopher Guest and Billy Crystal and Harry Shearer and I had written, a satire of 60 Minutes, and I was going to be the lawyer who defends the bad guy, and he was supposed to be defensive and a liar and, but mainly defensive, and that's back to the word attitude. So Billy Crystal said, why don't you do Marion Siebert? And I said, well, she'll find out. Ow, she, they never find out, he said. And so, but I forgot she would be there when we were shooting it. So when I was shooting it, I'm Harry Shears playing Mike Wallace, and he's cross-examining me. And at one point, uh, the director goes, cut, he's sweating, but Marion's there. And she goes, uh, oh, no, well, Harry's interviewing me, and I'm saying things like, uh, Mr. Mr. Thurm, do you realize as a lawyer that's illegal? I'd say, I know that. You don't think I know that? I'm a lawyer. I would know that. Then the director would go, cut, he's sweating, and she would go, I know that. You don't think I know that? I can see that. It was completely insane. And she never knew until she was finally told. Yeah, she was, she was, you were outed at some point, right? Uh, I was outed. And then she confronted me the last big party of that season. She said, I thought you were my friend. And I said, Marion, I am your friend, but, 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 but you know, impersonation is the highest form of compliment. And she said, I know that. You don't think I know that? <laughs> We're talking to Martin Short. Uh, we should say you're on public radio in the city of Catherine Hepburn's birth, uh, the place where she grew up. So, uh, and, and you say in the book that you do not have a Catherine Hepburn fetish, although by that time in the book you've now mentioned her two or three times in com- <laughs> completely different contexts, right? No, because, well, the thing was, I could get that voice. Mm-hmm. It's really... If, People think of me as an impersonator. I am not an impersonator. I just can get certain tones of voices. And her voice, if you had to shake and put it back in a certain place, and again, her attitude was strong and, and determined and independent. I'm going to swim in that ocean. I don't care if it's filled with ice. To hell with it. To hell with ice. <laughs> the, well, I, you know, you say you're not an impersonator. I, I absolutely was um, bewitched by you on uh, on Bewitched, actually. No, on, on yeah, SC- I love that. Role. Yeah, <laughs> on SCTV. Paul Lind, I played Paul Lind's brother. <laughs> the, on SCTV, and you would do impersonations that nobody else would do. I've I've looked all over for this, and I can't find it on YouTube or anything. Maybe I've hallucinated the whole thing. But I have a recollection of you doing Robin Williams filming a Tang commercial. That's correct. Yeah. And and they can't get you to calm down enough to do the Tang commercial, right? You're oh, going up and down a step line. You. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> And and I, I first of all, I mean, Robin Williams is not somebody that who would be easy to impersonate, uh, but you could get him somehow. Yeah, and, and but sometimes you would get an impersonation of someone you just have it mm-hmm. that while well, you taped it, you know. Like I remember, uh, I do Paul Anka. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't impersonate Paul Anka. But I could look like him, you know, with makeup, but I couldn't. But so I had uh, in those days a Walkman. I would just be listening just before and action, and then it would. Go, 
For 23 years, you made us laugh and cry and think, and we did it my way. But I couldn't do it like 10 minutes later. Right. Well, this also, uh, the fact that you would even consider impersonating Paul Anka brings up something that's really clear from your book and, and that it's been clear all Get along. Get out of the big money, you mean, that instant? <laughs> yeah. No, it's been clear all along that you, you love entertainment. Few people have spent as much time making fun of entertainment and, and of entertainers and loving entertainment so much. And this is something that starts for you, really, when you're a little kid, right? You were just absolutely uh, enthralled by, by sort of mainstream entertainment. I, I was. I mean, I, I clearly probably had a calling, but because I lived in, again, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, it was so unrealistic to be in American show business. I'd never even been in the States till I was 15, so, uh, and we were 50 miles from Buffalo. So I, it, it just, I, I translated that into uh, a fantasy variety show in my attic, and, uh, but then with plans to be a doctor. It just didn't seem realistic. But I think kids do that a lot. You know, the answer is right in front of them, and then they look around, and they, they can't see it. Well, so uh, you were up in that attic. And there's a story about you that I, I read someplace else that's not in the book. Um, and, uh, and maybe when I tell it, it'll be clear why it's not in the book. But I, I, I think one of your brothers told the story that you were up there doing these shows that you would make up and creating this sort of fantasy entertainment world um, starring you. Uh, and that you couldn't be bothered at times to come downstairs to go, to go to the bathroom because you would just get so caught up in this. <laughs> and they... This is this is first of all, my brother's insane, <laughs> and secondly, that was not uh, during the show, during the taping of my variety show on NBC every other Tuesday. Mm-hmm. But in my head, it, no, this would be like if I if came in late, yeah. and I was afraid that I'd get caught if I went downstairs to go to the bathroom because. You know, there was a bathroom was on the second floor, and I was on the third floor. Right. So what I'd do is I'd pee in a <laughs> Fotheringham's plastic shirt bag, uh. tie it, <laughs> lean out the window, whip it into the neighbor's tree. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, that would be in the winter, and then spring, it would be 18 bags of plastic would be up there. Right, and the, there would be kind of a thawing process as they would all exactly. kind of go, pat, 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 a, pat. A, a, gentle, a gentle rain <laughs> on the meeks, who were our neighbors. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about SCTV, which is a really unusual show, and it turns out a very unusual working environment. I mean, compared, we were just talking to Peter Melman, who you know, just, just describes being under the gun all the time, working for Seinfeld, uh, Larry David standing outside his office, tapping his foot, where's the script, where's the script? Um, uh, SCTV had this somewhat, it had a different feel. I think it had a very specifically Canadian feel, and part of that was because you guys had this six-week and six-week writing schedule. Explain how that worked. Well, it was just, it, you know, to give another example, I, I went, you know, within four months, I went from SCTV to Saturday Night Live, and they were so completely different because in Saturday Night Live, you know, you, you, you start writing on Monday and the read-through is Wednesday, and if you don't have an idea, if you're a writer, then you're, you just have to fake, and it's a stressful nightmare week. SCTV, you would write for six weeks and shoot for six weeks. And you'd also write a little bit during those six weeks, and you'd edit those pieces during that time as well. But you were, um, if you, if, I remember Eugene, who was such a prolific writer, Eugene Levy. Uh, one week we started back, or one season we started back, and he just didn't have an idea. And for, you know, for a week he'd say, "Hey, Eugene, got anything?" No. Nope. <laughs> 
And, but it was fine because he made up for it in the last four weeks of the first two weeks where he didn't write. Uh, so that, it, it was a kind of more civilized schedule for um, letting even ideas ferment. And it seemed to create a comedy that was different, too, that was really heavily character-driven a lot of the time, maybe not quite as dependent on a classic structure of beats. Uh, right, but it also had a luxury. It had two luxuries. One was it didn't have an audience. Mm-hmm. So you could, you know, if you do a piece that you think is hilarious on Saturday Night Live, it doesn't matter how pure you want to be. If you go out there and no one laughs, it's cut. And you're the first person to say, cut it. But there you could do, you know, bizarre characters, bizarre stories. You know, Jerry Lewis does meets Ingmar Bergman. <laughs> and, and you didn't worry if people were laughing or not because you were doing it for yourself. So it was more like an art form. And the other thing that could happen at SCTV is that you could maybe want to do a great movie parody at five minutes, and it didn't work at five minutes, but it could be a great movie promo at two minutes. Um, uh, live, if yeah. something's not working, you're in the middle of it. Yeah, I, I think there was a w- more of um, a, a trust of the audience that you did have. It's not true that you didn't have an audience. I was the audience. I was watching everything. No, uh-huh. no, but we were playing. Well, you were playing to is. Oh yeah, you were, you were playing just... to the assuming that the audience were were as smart as you were. Right. And that's I think a very good instinct. Um, it, it it does seem as though well I mean it was interesting to watch when you made that transition so you went over to Saturday Night Live and this was uh, kind of a time when when people who were really well established were being brought back to the show which is not the way SNL had functioned the whole idea had been had been this farm team for developing unknown no it was comics. only that one year the George Steinbrenner year they call it yeah and and. Well, first of all, I do think that, you know, those of us who are fans of yours were thinking, well, how much is he going to be able to do with the stuff that we really love? Will he be able to bring this stuff over? And watching uh, the, the, the thing that you did with Jackie Rogers Jr., which for untutored people, he's this albino uh, sort of Vegasy entertainer with this kind of disturbing laugh and many other disturbing mannerisms, hosting a game show that had featured Billy Crystal as, as Sammy Davis Jr. And, and a whole bunch of other stuff going on it really felt that there were moments on that season i know people weren't always really happy to be there that season but there were moments on that season where I, one could really feel a bunch of finely honed comic sensibilities coming together to pr- produce something really kind of close to perfection i you must be really happy anyway with some of the stuff that came out that year oh completely i mean i think that you know uh, the four of us harry billy and chris and i had a one-year contract so you know, you, you did kind of treat like each show was a special. <laughs> you couldn't kind of say, well, I'm here for seven years, eight years, so if I can't think of anything for a couple of weeks, it's okay. Um, and so I think that's why there was so much product from that group. And um, But, yes, I, I'm, I'm very proud of the stuff that year, and it was fun. You know, that piece, Jackie Rogers Jr., $100,000 Jackpot Wad, was also – it was we had a group of us writing it, and the group was um, Christopher Guest. Billy Crystal and myself, but also Paul Flaherty and Dick Blasucci from SCTV, they came in and guest wrote that week. So um, it does have a little more of an SCTV feel, that piece. I think it does. Once again, some of the comic beats are, are in different places. I remember we, you know, it's, it, Christopher Guest plays uh, a man named Rajiv Indalu, yeah, and Billy Sammy Davis, but J- Jim Belushi is Captain Kangaroo, but we wanted him to play Peggy Lee. <laughs> but he wouldn't do it. <laughs> um, 
Uh, we're talking to Martin Short right now. The book is, uh, I must say, My Life as a Humble Comedy Legend. I would assume the other thing that happened during that time was that um, characters, I mean, in particular, Ed Grimley's. Uh, so Ed Grimley was somebody that I knew about and was fascinated by and really enjoyed. But I'm assuming, you know, some large percentage of the Saturday Night Live audience, the first time Ed Grimley came out on the show, had never seen him before. And that you might have even been wondering, well, you know, how, how is the untutored audience going to react to this character? Oh, I had no idea. I had no idea. And um, I, I, I remember thinking, assuming that they may not know who he was, but um, I, I had just kind of gotten into the idea that this, where on SCTV he was more of an actor. He would show up in the Nutty Lab Assistant or Billy the Kid. He, he was an actor who worked on the station uh, SCTV. <laughs> On Saturday Night Live, he, I was more interested in his personal life, the idea that he might live in an apartment and be obsessed with Wheel of Fortune and just watch it every day and dream. He says at one point in that first sketch on that first show of that season that he wanted to be able to be in a position that he would know Pat Sajak so well that he could phone his house and say to his assistant, just tell him it's me. Right. And uh, I, so that made it more interesting to me to... to you know, create a different framework for a character like that. We have a, a clip. This isn't from SNL. This is from a comedy special that you're doing. Um, uh, I think you're, you're with Harold Ramis and Catherine O'Hara, and you're Ed Grimley. And it seems as though on in this clip you're trying to make Catherine O'Hara laugh on stage by doing Ed Grimley, whom she's obviously uh, about as familiar with as anybody could be. We're going to play a little bit of that clip. Now, uh, Barbara, maybe you'd like to begin. All right. Why don't you tell me a little bit about your educational background? Uh, well, I have my bachelor degree in mathematics from Columbia University, and I have my <laughs> master's in business administration from Stanford. Oh. Um, now, Ed, how about your work experience? Well, for the past several years, I've been employed by the Union Oil Company. Really? Uh, in what capacity, Ed? I work at L76 at the corner of Quanga and Melrose. You know. It's a very nice gas station with a car wash on the side. Oh. So, okay, but like when Al's away, who's going to take care of the station but me? Right. Okay, fine. But like the day goes on and, and that happens, but then it's like at the end of the day, and I have to take all the cash and like put it in a bag, you know? It's like a bag with a zipper, I must say. <laughs> um, was that all improvised? Were you, did you have a plan when you went out there to do that? It, well, that was, uh, that was at the first comic relief uh, in 1986. And, um, it, you know, I would improvise around that scene. But that was a scene, that was the first Ed Grimley scene at Second City. Oh, wow. Called uh. Sexist. And, uh, and, uh, and, and so we did it. We revamped re- it for that night at the amphitheater. It did seem a couple of times, particularly with facial expressions, like you were trying to see if you could get Catherine O'Hara to break. Is that oh, yeah. Some, yeah. Well, that's always the thing. When I hosted Saturday Night Live a couple of years ago, I, I, I was trying to do the same thing with Bill Hader, and he kept trying to look off <laughs> so he wouldn't look at me. Mm-hmm. He's an easy laugh. And I kept leaning in to try to get you know, attention. So it is kind of joyful to see, especially when the audience is part of it, when the audience knows that that these laughs or these breaks are real and spontaneous, they feel part of that experience and they feel a unique one. 
Uh, we're talking to Martin Short. His book is, my, um, I, m- I must say, My Life is a Humble Comedy Legend. We're going to take a break. We'll come back. Uh, there's quite a bit of serious material also from Martin Short's life in this book. We're going to talk about that as well. Shadows on the trail. All right, uh, I do have to say some thank yous here. Tucker Ives is on the board for us today. Betsy Kaplan produced this show. Betsy Kaplan has spent the last 48 hours in her own private comedy club. Uh, she's Her desk is right next to mine, and she's been watching Martin short clips and just cackling uh, for uh, the last two days. And she's usually a rather stern person. Uh, Hallie St. Germain, our intern, has uh, been on the phones today. Uh, we're talking to Martin Short. His new book is Martin Short, I must say, My Life as a Humble Comedy Legend. Before, I want to, do want to talk to you about some of the um, more serious stuff that's in the book about your, about your life and the things that, that kind of have framed your career in comedy. But before we do that, I mean, there's sort of one other character we have to talk about a little bit. He's a post- or he's somebody who could have emerged more, I think, post-SCT, post-SNL. His name is Jiminy Glick. Why don't we, maybe, Tucker, we can even begin by just uh, playing the uh, click, uh, just to sort of set him up a little bit. So Jiminy Glick is, he's just a terrible interviewer. He's just uh, the worst talk show interviewer ever. Here he is talking to comedy legend Mel Brooks. I had once an infection in my outer colon, and my doctor gave me a few rim shots, and it absolutely helped me. <laughs> and I think, and I think that it can help you too. Because rim shots, yeah, rim shots. In your outer colon. Outer colon. He gave me a few rim shots, <laughs> and it helped. It was an infection. It was an infection. That's what it was. That's what it was. Now let's give me a minute, will you? <laughs> All right, there you, you are getting Mel Brooks to break there. But uh, tell us about Jiminy Glick. Now, I said that so much of what you've done in terms of lampooning entertainment has had to do with your enormous affection from childhood for entertainment. But but Jiminy Glick, I, I feel like, is a little bit different. I think he, he seems like the interview that interviewer that you dread having interview you. No, it really wasn't about that. I, I, because I never, I always had a very easy time with the press, you know. I never got, you know, attacked particularly, or, or didn't have any vendettas. Therefore, but um, it was just when I was doing I was doing a talk show, and I wanted to do, have a character that go that would go out into junkets and interview and get more celebrities on the show, right? Mm-hmm. And um, but to me, back to that idea of simplistic labels of something else other than their appearance or their sound was um, morons with power. And uh, I would flip around, particularly because uh, I was also the, that that the talk show I did for a year in King World was at night, but it was also in day, and so because it was syndicated, so I would watch daytime television, and I was amazed at, you know, like people who were famous who had were so bad, <laughs> and yet they had staffs, you know, people assistants, people were scared of screwing up the lunch order. They would be in a mood. How's his mood today? And that just struck me funny. So, you know, he could have easily been in a different scenario. If I had to do Jiminy Glick again in a different life, I mean, a different version of it, he'd be a politician. He mm. would have moved into politics. <laughs> I, I don't I think, mean, yeah, I think that's going to happen. When, you, when you, you think of the phrase morons with power, right. you know, think of the Congress. Um, yeah, I think uh, they'll, they're doing that for you, actually. Well, it, yeah. al- it also seemed as though, I mean, so one thing we, one could conceivably compare this to is the Ali G show, except the Ali G show is funny when the person, when, when Andy Rooney just doesn't understand 
who it is that he's dealing with and, right. and reacts at that level. Whereas you say in the book that you're, you're less comfortable with that. You tried that with Jack Lemmon. He didn't seem to know what, who you were or what that was. So that didn't work for you. You'd rather well, do I it. Well, I don't, you know, the yeah. idea of, you know, I, yes, when I first did Jiminy Glick, first time I did him, it was at the, I went to the Emmy Awards, <clears throat> and this would be um, 1999 Emmys in September, and Jack Lemmon, you know, was brought up into that, I don't know what his age was, but he was not young anymore, and he was brought up to Jiminy, and I said, why was Harry Cohen at Columbia so mean? <laughs> and he said, well, I, he was nice to me, and he answered it sincerely, because he didn't know who Jiminy was, mm-hmm. probably didn't know who Martin Short was, so um, in that level, you're kind of getting them, you're making fun of them, and I, I, I that, that never, that's always seemed a little um, ambushy to me. Mm-hmm. So, so to me, it was, um, you know, all these people would sit and talk, and we'd shoot it like a movie. I remember um, interviewing Alec Baldwin, and we did one pass for about seven minutes, and then we broke, and then we said, did it like a second take, and then you'd edit it down. But he said, ask me about women, different women I've been with. <laughs> and so, you know, we're doing it like a movie. Yeah. But it, they were a partnership in it. When I d- interviewed Steven Spielberg, I said at one point, Stephen, I'm going to ask you a question. Start waxing on about your, you know, how you are as a director, your influences, and how you visualize things, and look off, so that I could, as he's answering it, pretend to be interested, but then slowly sneak out of the chair, and the camera followed me as I crawled over the craft service and go to eight jujubes, and a donut shoved in my pocket, crawled back, got back in the chair, and said, wonderful, you know. (laughs) Uh, Martin Jordan, in the time that we have left, uh, obviously this book also deals with very poignant material. Um, as a fan of yours, I've read a lot about you in the past and, and knew most of these stories about you uh, losing both your parents and your brother at a very young age and, and then at the about the passing of your beloved uh, wife. And uh, but sometimes comedians are not comfortable sharing that part of themselves, right? That they really they want to be understood comically. You're not strictly a comedian. You've done, you've done serious acting. You've played even very serious characters on shows like Damages. But, I mean, we associate you with comedy. Was there any reluctance to, on your part about, about sharing things that were just incredibly painful for you? Well, I think there was a reluctance in general about writing a book. For many years, I've been asked to write something, and I always said, "Ah, no, I'm not going to. I'm too Canadian. I'm private. Uh, you know, I'm not going to write about, you know, that actor who would phone me up and at four in the morning drunk. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not going to." Then you think, well, you don't have to include that story. But early on, I did feel like if I was going to write this book, I had to be open and honest about the things that moved me in certain directions, and even if we're not aware of it. And uh, so if you lose your parents at 20, and you've lost a brother by the time you're 20, and part of that, you can either be a victim to that, or you become a little braver, you're a little more fearless, a little empowered by it. You understand life lessons earlier. Some people don't learn those life lessons till they're, you know, 58. I was learning them at 20. So... Um, and even with the passing of my wife, I, I felt, you know, I, I, if I'm going to write this book, I've got to tell everyone what, what we went through as a couple. Maybe that will help another couple who are going through the same thing. It, it really is a, a beautiful love story, too. It's, it's, uh, I was saying to Peter Melman before, you know, what would 
uh, Rodney Dangerfield or Henny Youngman have done if they just had to talk about how crazy they were about their wives. But um, you're just so unabashedly uh, in, in love with your wife and still in love with your wife and still in conversation with your wife, something that you talk about in the book, that there's something... Uh, I mean, it's it, uh, first of all, I guess on behalf of your readers, I would say thank you for sharing that. It must that must have been something that was a little bit of a challenge, just because. I mean, you you, talk, you write in the book about how you still have conversations with her, which is something you might have decided to keep very private. No, I think that's a healthy thing. I think it's. I remember when when Nancy died, Mike Nichols was an old friend of mine, phoned me up and said, "You know, I don't see why you just can't keep the conversation going." And I thought, what great advice, you know. You know, the thing about death is that we live in a denial that it's ever going to happen. I mean, that's not a new concept, but it's a simple fact. And so uh, that's why often when people die, people don't talk about them anymore. They don't, oh, I mustn't talk, I mustn't mention her. Well, I know that my wife would have hated losing the battle with ovarian cancer, but she would also have hated not being talked about. So I thought that was one of the motives to write the book. But also, I think anyone we lose, a parent, you know, you, you can say, hey, Dad, what do you think? What, what, am I, how am I doing? You know, that's, there's nothing. I think that's good. I think that these people that we lose zoom into the ones that love them the most. I think it's a great point. The, the book is wonderful, and we don't have time to cover all of the things that I'd love to talk about. Um, the, the famous uh, Toronto production of Godspell that turned out to be this kind of tiger, Tigris and Euphrates for modern comedy, <laughs> all these... Uh, I like that. Uh, yeah, our sort of monic, modern comic civilization was born in this rather unlikely context. Many <laughs> other things that I'd love to ask you about, Martin Short, but we're all big fans here at the station. We know that there's talk of uh, naming a building after you in uh, Hamilton. We're, we'll name a chair after you today oh, well and i'm i'm I, that's the biggest honor i could get yeah well even it's a not cushion i'll take yeah we don't even really have a really good chair but i mean it's yeah. it's it's a medium quality chair uh, nothing wrong with that nothing wrong with that thank you so much for joining us today i really am a big fan as i thank sup- you, suppose did come through all right uh we will be back tomorrow with a kind of well kind of a different thing i'll be down in new haven talking to joe gannam the former mayor of bridgeport who wants to be the mayor of bridgeport again of course he's gone to prison in the intervening period. Read my name.